This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and thanks for downloading the latest podcast from Rear Vision, the show that brings you the stories behind the news headlines. Here, it's all about Hong Kong. It was the 10th strike weekend of protests in Hong Kong. On the streets of Kwai Chung, police used tear gas to try and disperse crowds, further angering protesters who were fearful of increasing Chinese interference in Hong Kong. Can you guys try to act human for just one day? You're acting like dogs. I mean, who shoots tear gas inside a train station? When Hong Kong once again became part of China in 1997, it was a thriving capitalist economy with civil rights and freedom of speech inherited from the British who'd ruled Hong Kong for over 150 years. As Rear Vision looks at the background to weeks of increasingly violent unrest, let's begin at the dawn of British rule. The British essentially took Hong Kong by force, booty in the opium wars of the 1840s. Professor Nick Bisley from La Trobe University. Cutting a long and complex story very short, essentially the British sailed their fleets up the Pearl River into what is now Guangzhou, what they refer to as Canton, and using force of arms for which they were you know, hugely superior over the Imperial Chinese military, they forced not only the opium trade to be allowed into Guangzhou, but as a consequence of, a, of the battles that followed, they were ceded the territory of first Hong Kong Island and a very small part of the Kowloon Peninsula. And then in subsequent conflicts, they expanded that territory to the entirety of the whole British Crown Colony of Hong Kong, and which remains the special administrative region of Hong Kong that's now part of the People's Republic of China. The final treaty over the territory gave the British a 99-year lease, due to end in 1997. Was there any doubt that Hong Kong would once again become part of China? As time went by, and particularly as Britain ceded almost all of its colonial holdings after the Second World War, Hong Kong looked increasingly like this oddity that its legal standing was in some question. Britain had gotten out of the business of being in empire. You had these little dots around the world like Gibraltar and like Hong Kong. But it was something that ultimately, and certainly the People's Republic of China, felt very strongly about. And as we know in China, the message of the Communist Party had long been since 1949 that China had suffered a, a century of shame and humiliation and that under the strong leadership of the party, China was going to make good on its long-term historical claims. And that meant you know, righting those wrongs. So on the one hand, you had a Britain that was increasingly kind of uneasy with the standing of its basically the legal claim over Hong Kong and the People's Republic of China that was in the late 1970s and early 1980s beginning to open up and reform its economy. And that led to the negotiations in the early 1980s between Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping around firstly what would happen because I think very quickly both sides agreed that Hong Kong should go back that the way in which Hong Kong had come into British hands was not tenable in the long run. So the question was, what were the circumstances under which British rule would come to an end? What would be the conditions for the people of Hong Kong? All of the things around, you know, are they British citizens? For how long would British citizenship hold? And so on. And that was what was the real subject of negotiation through the 1980s. And it led to an agreement in 1984 that in 1997, so 13 years after the date of the signature, 
of the white paper agreement, Hong Kong would revert to being part of the People's Republic of China. What did the two governments want out of the agreement? The principal one from the British point of view, and it was very much Britain negotiating the handover on the terms with which they would find most favourable, and the Chinese were essentially making concessions because their principal claim that the PRC was after was essentially we'd like it all back and we'd like our sovereignty, we'd like the PRC flag to fly over it. But equally, China wanted out of Hong Kong a kind of economic engine because, remember, they're negotiating this in the early 1980s. The reform program began in 1978. China was at that point still an extraordinarily poor country, and it looked at Hong Kong, this entrepot of capitalism that was in the 1980s, really at the heart of the financial innovations that were really beginning to drive the acceleration of economic growth in East Asia. Any major multinational firm that had headquarters or did business in the Asia-Pacific had its headquarters in Hong Kong. So what China was looking at and wanting from Hong Kong was not just a symbolic return to the motherland of this peace that had been stolen by the perfidious Brits, but also a really important economic piece to the reform program that they were beginning to to enact. For the British, of course, the question was, how do we protect the rights and privileges of British citizens? Because up until that point, if you'd been born in Hong Kong, regardless of your heritage, you were considered a British citizen with the passport and all the things that go with that. That obviously wouldn't continue for people born after 1997, but what would be the standing of those people? What about expat Brits who had moved to Hong Kong and that was their home? How would they be treated? How would anyone in Hong Kong be treated? What would be the legal system? So there was quite a complex set of considerations at play. And if you were in Britain looking at Hong Kong, and certainly if you were a company with investments in Hong Kong, what you certainly didn't want was just a wholesale return of the place and the legal system into just another province of the People's Republic of China. Again, remember, it's 1984, and that would be taking a 50-year step back in time, as well as going under the yoke of the Chinese Communist Party and all of the things that go with that. So the overarching formula that they struck to resolve this was an agreement that came to be known as the one country, two systems model. And that is, in essence, that Hong Kong would continue to operate as if it were not part of China, that it would be subject to its own laws and rules that had been the norm prior to 1997. And that whilst the Chinese flag would fly, the socialist system of government would not apply in Hong Kong. So it's very clear the agreement that they reached was that Hong Kong would not be subject to PRC rules, and that's to say in particular the rule of the Communist Party of China. It would not be subject to the authoritarianism of the People's Republic of China until 50 years had passed from 1997. The British Prime Minister, Mrs Thatcher, leaves Peking today for Hong Kong, having signed the agreement that will give Hong Kong back to China after more than 150 years of British rule. The world can draw a lesson from the successful outcome of our joint enterprise. The determined negotiation can succeed. Her confrontation would surely lead to disaster. That goodwill and friendship can overcome misunderstanding. That an intractable problem inherited from the past can be solved through an imaginative approach to the future. During the 1982 to 1984 Sino-British negotiation, more Hong Kong people voiced their opinions on their future. Sunny Lo is a Hong Kong political commentator. But unfortunately, 
both Britain and China believe that the people of Hong Kong did not have the right of self-determination. Namely, Hong Kong would not become an independent political entity. As such, both Britain and China decided the future of Hong Kong without consulting the opinion of the Hong Kong people really extensively. And so there is a legacy of the lack of consultation with the Hong Kong people, a point picked up by more localists now in Hong Kong after 1997. But overall, the Hong Kong situation under British rule was politically quiet until the early 1980s, and particularly in 1989 when China's Tiananmen incident occurred. During that year, many Hong Kong people were politically awakened and they were stimulated to participate in politics, expressing their grave concerns over the future of Hong Kong after 1997, because in the year 1984, Britain and China decided to sign the Sino-British Joint Declaration over Hong Kong's future, saying that Hong Kong's existing capitalist lifestyle will remain unchanged 50 years after 1997. So when the Tiananmen incident occurred in 1989, many Hong Kong people were frightened. Some of them migrated to Australia, to Canada, to America, to European countries. And also, one year after 1989, some Hong Kong people decided to form a political party, the United Democrats of Hong Kong, which is a predecessor of the current Democratic Party, to participate in local elections. So in short, the Tiananmen incident in 1989 stimulated the participation of the Hong Kong people, stimulated the migration of Hong Kong people out of Hong Kong to other countries, and also prompted China to tighten the content of the basic law, which is a mini constitution for Hong Kong after 1997. During the 1980s, and especially after the Tiananmen Square massacre, the British introduced changes to the Hong Kong political system, making the ruling body, the Legislative Council, more democratic. During the final stages of the British rule, the British administration slightly liberalised and democratised the political system of Hong Kong. Hong Kong, under the British rule, actually had a kind of benign authoritarian system in which the British colonial authorities kept a close eye or surveillance over those interest groups critical of the government. And this was the situation in the 1970s. But in the 1980s, when the Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed, the British colonial administration began to democratize Hong Kong a little bit by firstly introducing the district councils, which was and which is advisory body in different districts. And then the British colonial authorities decided to democratize the legislative council by introducing more directly elected seats. And the first direct election for the legislative council seats was held in the year 1991, because for the first time, there were some directly elected legislators in the Legislative Council. Before that, the members of the Legislative Council were wholly appointed by the British colonial governor and the government. So in 1990s, the British liberalized 
and democratize the system further. And in particular, in the year 1990, just one year after the Tiananmen incident in China, the British colonial government introduced the Bill of Rights in Hong Kong, trying to safeguard and protect civil liberties in Hong Kong. And then in the 1990s, especially in the year 1993, when the last governor, Christopher Patton, arrived in Hong Kong, he decided to increase the democratization process of the Legislative Council to expand the franchise, allowing more people to vote for the candidates. Unfortunately, the Chinese government argued with Christopher Patton. From the Chinese government perspective, Christopher Patton suddenly changed the original tacit consensus between Britain and China that the political status quo would remain. So Christopher Patton was regarded by the Chinese officials as a troublemaker trying to democratize Hong Kong, trying to perhaps help the Hong Kong Democrats in such a way as to confront China in Hong Kong after 1997. Patton also watered down the draconian public order ordinance, which were the rules on public assemblies and public protests in Hong Kong. Anthony Dapperan is a Hong Kong-based writer and lawyer. The Chinese side took this as a great offence because they saw it as Patton deliberately interfering in Hong Kong at the last minute and making changes that China had never agreed to when the joint declaration was negotiated earlier and sort of, as they saw it, messing up Hong Kong immediately before it was handed back to them. And indeed, many of Patton's reforms were unwound as soon as the handover occurred, including those amendments to the public order ordinance, which were then wound back to the old colonial state that they remain in today. Day. And of course, on the, on the British side, they were nervous about Beijing's behaviour given what happened in Tiananmen Square in 1989. And, and so the negotiations over you know, the precise handover arrangements, the, the negotiations over the basic law that would become Hong Kong's constitution became very fraught in light of these um, surrounding circumstances. This is Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on RN, Radio National. After months of increasingly violent demonstrations over a bill that would allow Hong Kongers to be extradited and tried under the law in mainland China, Rear Vision looks at the longer background to the protests. I've been asked by Her Majesty the Queen to read the following message. Five hours from now, the Union flag will be lowered and the flag of China will fly over Hong Kong. More than a century and a half of British administration will come to an end. But Britain is not saying goodbye to Hong Kong. The shared legacy of family and of friendship, trade and investment, Culture and history run strong and deep. The Prince of Wales speaking at the handover on the 30th of June 1997. His message of hope and goodwill was not shared by everyone in Hong Kong. 
The new Hong Kong government faced its first challenge even as it was being sworn into office in the early hours of this morning. An estimated 6,000 people took to the streets in the centre of the city, calling for a democratically elected parliament. Members of the Democratic Party took over Hong Kong's legislature in a defiant stand against the new government. And the message to their new communist rulers was clear. Long life, as 6,000 people watched, members of the Democratic Party stood on a makeshift stage in front of Hong Kong's Legislative Assembly building, counting down the seconds to Chinese rule. While there have been a number of attempts by the Chinese government to formally change or introduce laws in Hong Kong since the handover, its influence has been expressed more subtly as well, according to Nick Bisley. What we have seen in Hong Kong is a kind of creeping interference and a growing unease about PRC influence and a sort of nibbling away of, not just nibbling, but a curtailing of the norms of democracy. So it's everything from the most extreme end, the kidnapping of publishers who've been publishing books that are critical of Xi Jinping or critical of the party, and them disappearing for several weeks and then suddenly appearing in China and often giving clearly forced television interviews in which they recant for them their previous behaviour. You've seen the stacking of the executive body with not just pro-China voices, but extremely strong pro-CCP voices, the stacking of University of Hong Kong Council, you know, increasing control, either indirect or direct, of, for example, the media. So the South China Morning Post, which is the largest English language newspaper in Hong Kong, which is now owned by Jack Ma of Alibaba fame, and certainly someone who is known for his good relations with the leadership of the party. So if you read the SMP now, so it's the South China Morning Post, you're not reading China Daily but you're not reading the paper that used to exist, a you know, vibrant, free expression newspaper. So those are the ways in which there's a creeping takeover, so to speak, of things that are then periodically matched by these formal efforts to curtail things. In the last 22 years, the situation in Hong Kong has been politically quite turbulent because there were several major events which marked the serious dispute between Beijing and the pro-democracy Hong Kong people. The first uh, event uh, was the year 2003, when the Tong Chiwa administration proposed a national security bill, which would legislate on Article 23 of the Basic Law. Many citizens were frightened and they were concerned about the civil liberties so they opposed the National Security Bill, and on July 1st, 2003, half a million people went to the streets to protest. And the Tongjiwa government decided to postpone the enactment and legislation on the National Security Bill indefinitely. Another year of controversy was 2012, when the Hong Kong government proposed the national education policy and curriculum. And this national education curriculum, in the eyes of some students and also parents, appear to brainwash the school children in such a way as to instigate or instill a sense of ideological indoctrination in the psyche of the Hong Kong children. So in 2012, 
many pro-democracy parents and student activists, especially the scholarism interest group led by a young boy named Joshua Wong, they oppose the national education curriculum. And again, the Hong Kong government eventually backed down, saying that the national education curriculum would be up to the secondary schools for implementation decision. However, the central government in Beijing was concerned because the Beijing government believed that some Hong Kong people were not, quote, patriotic enough, end of quote, so that the national education policy was obstructed and hindered. And so this was the situation in 2012. The most controversial year came in the year 2014, when the leaders of the so-called Occupy Central movement to push for the democratization of Hong Kong, especially the direct election of the chief executive in the future. China's central government has condemned pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, saying it supports the way regional authorities are handling the situation. And Hong Kong's leader says the unprecedented demonstration is illegal and that protesters should withdraw immediately. But the tens of thousands who've taken over the streets for a fifth day are showing no signs of backing down. The students of Hong Kong have moved into the centre of town. During the hot day, they calmly occupy the streets they've claimed. The government here has pulled back the riot police for now, and both sides are waiting for the other's next move. Now, this Occupy Central movement lasted from September to December 2014. Originally, the Occupy Central movement was supported by many people. The Occupy movement took place in three major sites in Hong Kong, and this really disrupted the traffic and even affected the businessmen' interests. So many businesses were affected, and so with the passage of time, the Occupy Central movement lost the popular support, and eventually the police decided to clear the Occupy movement with the eventual imprisonment of two of the free Occupy movement leaders. Public demonstrations and vigils have been a leitmotif of political life in Hong Kong, beginning even before its return to China. But nothing matches the recent protests. They began over a bill that could allow the extradition of Hong Kongers to face justice in mainland China, where the courts are controlled by the Communist Party. Although the chief executive, Carrie Lam, suspended the bill in June, the protests have continued since then, becoming ever more disruptive and violent. At the end of last week, we saw satellite images of Chinese armoured personnel carriers parked in a sports complex in the city of Shenzhen on Hong Kong's border. Sunny Lo says that although the Hong Kong government has handled the situation poorly, Beijing will be reluctant to send in the army, fearful of fueling the pro-Taiwan independence forces in presidential elections early next year in Taiwan. The government tackled this issue quite clumsily and poorly in face of public opposition. And the police handling of the protesters also turned more and more violent 
at the same time, the protesters also became more and more violent. On the protester side, they are quite fragmented. They don't have a specific large platforms. They don't have specific and clear-cut leaders. And the protesters, they use a variety of you know, technology tools to mobilize themselves loosely, but collectively and yet effectively. So in Hong Kong now, there is a discussion on whether the situation will deteriorate to such an extent that the People's Liberation Army would probably be deployed to help the local police to quell the protests or to calm down the riots in a more effective way. However, there are concerns saying that if the People's Liberation Army were deployed, then the one country, two system image would be damaged severely and the beneficiary will become the pro-Taiwan Independence Democratic Progressive Party, which can point to the failure of the one country, two system in Hong Kong and which would become perhaps more popular in the current run-up to the January 2020 presidential elections. If the one country, two system looks like a failure, this would even benefit the pro-independence Taiwan forces. I think we will see the Hong Kong police pursue a much more aggressive strategy of mass arrest. Up until now, the police have largely used tear gas and rubber bullets to try and disperse protester crowds. And I think what they are going to try to do now is to try to contain and undertake mass arrests of people, charge those people with rioting, which is a very serious offence, carrying a a 10-year jail sentence in Hong Kong. And by doing that, take at least some of the most radical or extreme protesters out of action, take them off the battlefield, so to speak, and to deter many of the other protesters, many of whom are university students Students or young university graduates, middle-class kids that while they feel very passionately and, and are very willing to get out on the streets and protest and, and willing even to suffer tear gas and rubber bullets, are probably less willing to suffer the prospect of a 10-year jail term and completely ruining their future. And so they may be deterred by the prospect of being arrested and jailed to stop coming out. And I think Beijing hopes that with some very aggressive and firm policing and without the need to deploy the PLA, they will be able to break this weekly cycle of protests. And after that, there seems to be some indications that Beijing will pursue some sort of a policy of trying to juice the Hong Kong economy. I think they see the discontent in Hong Kong as primarily economic, incredibly unaffordable housing, wage stagnation, a fairly flat economy. And Beijing probably thinks that by addressing these economic issues, they can make Hong Kong people happy again. Of course, this is not really about the economy anymore, if it indeed it ever was. It really is about about politics and about how people feel about the way Beijing has been governing them. When the protest began, it was about getting rid of the extradition treaty. And they got most of that, but not all of it. So what happened was the Carrie Lam withdrew the legislation, but didn't get rid of it entirely. She didn't renounce it. I think if she had said, no, that's it, we're not doing this at all, I think that probably would have nipped it in the bud. But because it's still there lurking in the background, and then because of the way in which the protests have escalated, it's very difficult to see what the Hong Kong government could do to pacify the protesters, barring something that's pretty hard to imagine, like Carrie Lam stepping down or being removed. It's actually really difficult to see this ending 
positively, that's the same which the, the protesters willingly step back from the streets and say, we're happy we got most of what we want. The other outcome, of course, is the crackdown. And whether that's a Hong Kong-led crackdown, whether that's a crackdown with some quiet support from the PRC, or whether that's probably the worst-case scenario for everyone, and I mean that on all fronts, is the PLA rolling out and dealing with this as the PLA deals with these sorts of things. I think that's the outcome that no one wants, and I mean no one. I don't think anyone in Beijing, Hong Kong, whether you're Carrie Lam or the protesters, want that to happen. But you couldn't sit there and rule that one out. If this continues for another month, I think Xi Jinping is going to be left with very little option. But I think it's a, it's a card he does not want to have to play. Professor Nick Bisley, Head of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. You also heard Hong Kong commentator Sunny Lowe and Anthony Dapperan, the author of City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. Russell Stapleton is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.